0: Think about the youth who are not able to stay in their home. Think about the youth who don't understand why they're not in their home. Think about the youth who eventually find out that they are not able to return home. Every child deserves to know that someone loves them and someone is going to open their heart and their home to them.
1: When you go through a family. And then you lose that, you struck one match and you blew it out. So you wasted like one match and you can't use that match again. So you, that's what it sort of feels like. I have a lot of dreams, but I feel like they all go around being a protector. Protecting people is like, just saves someone and it honestly saves me in some ways.
0: I started Congregations for Kids uh, around 2007, and the reason I did that, because honestly, the government cannot do it alone. So I looked at the churches. Why not the churches? Why not the churches? That's what Christians are for. That's what we're here for, to make sure that the needs of the the kids, as well as the community, they're being met.
1: I think the church and Christ and all people should help because I know the Bible says uh, take care of orphans and widows in their distress.
0: We need the community. We can't do this by ourselves and Congregations for Kids has answered that
1: call. CFK is a bridge between Mecklenburg County DSS and other private agencies here in Charlotte and the community, primarily the church. What our heart is, what our mission is, is to create stable systems of support for every child and youth in foster care. Our biggest dream and our biggest goal is to make sure that every child is connected to a system of support. Good morning again. Thanks for being here. Um, Yeah, I look over on the screen here and I realize that Christmas is 10 days away or something like that. If you can believe that, Uh, just crazy to think so. But uh, we are excited about that. We're very thankful that, uh, I know most of you already know, that... Christmas Eve, we're actually able to meet here in the school, which we're really excited about, so just want to continue reminding you that this Christmas Eve, uh, Idlewild will be here at 4 o'clock, so we hope you can join us for that. You're going to hear a little bit more details about that at the end of the service, but one of the things that we are doing this this whole month of December, uh, we are highlighting some of our local ministry partners last week. We looked at Urban Promise this week. You saw uh, from Congregations from Kids, a wonderful organization uh, that has helped place many kids into foster care, something we care very much about. And we're, we, this entire month, are raising an offering that will go, 100% will go to be divvied up among these three. On Christmas Eve, just as a reminder, when we take the offering on Christmas Eve, every single penny will be going to one of these three. And so we're really excited about that, and we're glad to be able to highlight them and, and what all they are doing and in our city today. It's incredible. So um, once again, we're really glad that you're here this morning. Um, It is officially December. We are that much closer to Christmas, uh, but we're also that much more close to being able to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And that's exciting, and that's super fun. And so a part of that, this, as we're this month, we're doing that in part by looking at one particular verse in the book of Isaiah, and we'll be there here in just a little bit, and his prophecy of the coming Messiah, the man that we know to be Jesus, and we'll be there in just a moment. But let me open us up with a word of prayer, and then we will jump into this this morning. God, it's, it's incredible to think about how one word, one name, can have so much power, and yet the name of Jesus is that. Um, that name alone has changed the entire world. It's why we're here this morning. Um, that name encapsulates so much, and we're, we're so glad to be here this morning to celebrate it, to be encouraged by it. And my, my prayer this morning, God, is as we look into your word that you've written to us, that it would encourage us, that it would equip us, that it would allow us to draw closer to you. God, I know that's your heart. That's your intention. Above all things, you desire to connect with us. And so, God, I pray that this morning your spirit uh, would would allow us to do just that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I, I asked you about your names for a reason. I, just as a real quick show of hands here, how many of you were named for a particular reason? Your name was given for a specific reason? All right, eh, a little more, okay, more than half, okay. Um, how many of you named either your kids or even a pet a particular name for a reason? Okay. Yeah, most of us have, and then, um, and of course, we look at our last names, you know, last names have their own uniqueness to them as well, as how they were created, when they were formed and all this, but names, names are really important. Um, I often laugh at the story of my name, okay, because I give my mom a hard time about this a lot, because my mom, <clears throat> her desire, when, even when she was a little kid, was that if she had boys, she wanted to name the, her, her sons. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Okay, that's how she wanted to go. I don't know that she necessarily wanted to follow the order of that, but she wanted to name after the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, okay? So when my brother is born, my older brother was born, my older brother's name is Matt, Matthew, okay? I'm next. So you think I've got one of three choices, right? I can either be Mark, Luke or John and I didn't make the cut, apparently. <laughs> And I, and I always tell my mom, like, so why didn't I, make, was I not good enough to be one of the gospel writers? It's like, well, you just didn't look like a, or a Mark or Luke or John. I'm like, well, thanks. Okay. Um, but but names, names are important. Uh, they often have a lot of meaning and purpose behind them. Um, this, this, I think you could argue, maybe this is fading a little bit, uh, especially in our culture. Um, it's not uncommon to meet people nowadays like, oh, wh- why'd you name them that? Oh, because I like this character of a TV show. Which is fine. I mean, I, whatever you want to do is fine. But uh, in a lot of cultures today, names are still very meaningful and powerful. Uh, they have a lot of value to them. And w- we see this to be especially true in the Bible. Many of the people that are referenced throughout Scripture, um, the, the Bible not only lists their name, but it also tells what their name means and why they were given that name. We think about the Apostle Peter, Joshua. And as you might expect, there's no one name, more common name found throughout the Bible than God's himself. And interestingly enough, there are more variation of how, what we call God than anybody. In fact, uh, we, there's, there's literally hundreds of names throughout the New and Old Testament that reference who God is. But just some of the, the more common ones throughout the Old Testament here uh, that you can see here. We've got, um, we've got Yahweh. The God who is always there, Abba, Father God, Adonai, God who is always there, Elohim, Creator of God, and and there's many, many more, more than I. We don't have time to get into it, but these names they serve a purpose. God doesn't just choose these names out of a whim. He, he calls himself this for a reason, and, and, and that is because each of these names reflect a character, an aspect of who God is. We have to remember, God is so big, he is so incredible, that you can't fully summarize God. What you have to do is you have to create all these different aspects that hopefully help paint a bigger picture and allow you to see him for who he really is. So to names, so to God, names matter. They help paint a picture of himself and they and they they allow us to draw closer, right? Because sometimes what we need to remember is that God is our Father. That God is our Abba. That sometimes what we need to remember is that God is the creator of all things. He's Elohim. And we may not call him that, but it's, it's more likely to remember that God creates. And that's the whole purpose here is God is trying to give us these things to paint this bigger picture of himself so that we're drawn closer to him. We find that to be true in the book of Isaiah. Uh, if, you, if you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah, we'll be there in just a few minutes. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 today. But just as a kind of a recap, we started this series last week where we kind of set up the context of, of what Isaiah is all about. And I just want to do kind of a quick recap. Isaiah is actually a very difficult book to read. Uh, there's a lot of heartache in it. There's a lot of difficult things to process. But there's also something really amazing that happens there because Isaiah is writing and he's prophesying to the nation of Israel. The nation has turned their back against God. They want nothing to do with him. And we need to remember why that's so important. I mean, this isn't just a a slight turn. Isaiah, Isaiah talks about how it's a complete 180. And they start committing social injustices that they are really going down this bad path. They were not seeking out God in any way. And so Isaiah, as a prophet, is writing to the nation, urging them, pleading them to come back to God. And yet, as we always see in the character of God, it's going to be God that provides the answer. It's going to be God that ultimately will provide the solution needed. And it's going to be out of his love. It's going to be out of his grace that he meets them with the solution. And that solution is going to be this, a Savior. A Savior that will come and provide everything that everybody needs out of no merit of their own. For nothing that the people of Israel will do on their own, God is going to step in and intercede. And so, even though there there is a strong negative aspect to this book, even though Isaiah has a lot of difficulty in it, there's also something very beautiful about it because Isaiah is also the most comprehensive book in the Old Testament that that is prophesying the coming Messiah. Nobody talks more about it than Isaiah, nobody talks more about the coming Savior than Isaiah does. So there's something amazing that's going to happen here. Despite all their failures, Isaiah is reminding them God will provide. God will be the answer, and he's going to do it in the most incredible way. So, Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be today. If you would follow along with me. Isaiah 9, we're going to look at verse 6 and verse 7. I'll have it up on here on the screen for you as well here. It says, the great famous verse here in Isaiah it says for us for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, what do you do when you have an entire nation of people that have turned their back against you, that have have begun to follow um, very simple ways, Committing all these social injustices and things towards God. What do you do? Well, the answer that God says is a child. What do you do when an entire nation? You send a child. For uh, unto us a child is given. Let's pause and think about that for a sec, okay? Do you understand how strange that sounds? So the answer to all the problems is a child. Notice that God's plan doesn't say, I'm going to send you a grown adult. I'm not sending a valiant warrior. I'm not sending a wise old sage. It's going to begin with a child. It must have seemed odd, but this was going to be no ordinary child. Isaiah goes on to say that this child is the long-awaited Savior. This child would be the one to come and rescue and restore people back to God this child would be unlike any other because this child would be God himself this child would be God incarnate in the human flesh you see there have been many kings and leaders throughout time that have that have made it their effort to bring people back into relationship with God but only one would succeed Many kings and leaders tried to bring people back into relationship with God, but only one would ultimately succeed, and that would be the Messiah, the one that we profess to be Jesus, the one whose birthday we'll be celebrating here next week, a man whose entire life, including his birth, is unlike any other. But it, it still must have been an unexpected answer and a solution for the people. Right? To think that, okay, we, as Isaiah is talking about all the things that are going to happen and, and the level of despair that they're in, to be told, well, well God's going to ultimately take care of it and he's going to send us a child has to be confusing. But as I thought about that this week, I thought, isn't that how God norm- often operates for us? That, that a lot of times, much of what God does in our lives causes us confusion, fear, or even anger. However, this is simply because of our own depravity and not because of any failure on our part. But we learn here in Isaiah. Isaiah tells us it it will be this child, and the child is given four distinct titles that we just read. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. Here's something else that's kind of neat about this, okay? All four of those titles are given to him before he's even born. Now, you want to talk about living up to an expectation? You want to talk about living up to a standard? Right? Parents do this with kids, right? We have a hopeful, an expectation of what we want our child to become. God says, this child will be a wonderful counselor. This child will be mighty God, everlasting father, and a prince of peace. And today we're going to look at that first one. We're going to look at this first title that he's given, Wonderful Counselor. Now, one of the things that I really love about Scripture is that as God is the ultimate author, as, as, he, as he unpacks his word through different authors, but he's still the ultimate author of the entire Bible, one of the things that, that I often have to remind myself is that God is a perfect author, and in other words, what I mean by that is that God makes no mistakes in his writing. There's nothing in the Bible that is overlooked by God. We may interpret it as such, but God doesn't, he thinks through all parts of it. And so what I have to remind myself is when we read this in Isaiah, one of the questions that I asked was, okay, so why does God begin with wonderful counselor? If he's describing this, this coming Savior, this child, he says he's going to be these four things. He, he starts off by saying, the first thing is I want you to know about him, he's the Wonderful Counselor. Now, I think all four titles are equally important, but I think God wants us to understand and he wants us to start with Wonderful Counselor for a reason. Notice that he, he doesn't start off by saying that he's the judge or the enforcer or the disciplinarian. He says he's a counselor, and not just a counselor, he's a wonderful counselor. So let's break this word down. The word wonderful, okay? The word itself literally means incomprehensible, marvelous, to be in awe. As I kind of talked about already, when you talk about the, the nature of God, you can't, you can't draw a box and put God in it. God is too big for that to, to, to fully describe the majesty and the wonder of God just is too difficult to do. So when we talk about the word wonderful, this is what, what we're trying to say with this child, is that he, he ultimately becomes incomprehensible. And what that causes is marvelous wonder and awe. That, that what happens is we look at the person, this, this child, and, and we become enamored because he simply is too wonderful. And we'll look at um, how that applies to counselor, Here in just a second, but if you were to read even just one of the Gospels, and in fact, I think you could read even just one chapter in any of the Gospels, you would find how this adjective, this wonderful aspect applies to the person of Jesus. There is no person in the Bible that rises to this level of being wonderful than Jesus himself. Everything about his life is wonderful. Think about this from the second he's born. The fact that he is born to a virgin is wonderful. That's incomprehensible. Okay? Every single thing about him, his healings, the, the fact that he was able to raise people from the dead. Think about the things that, that Jesus said, right? The, the C.S. Lewis said if, if Jesus isn't truthful, then he must have been crazy. And he's right, because the things that Jesus says, they're, they're either crazy or they're true. And if they're true, they're wonderful. They're incomprehensible. How do, you, how, do you, how do you take what Jesus says and not just sit there and be like, that's incredible. How does Jesus think of something like that? So the things that he does, the things that he teaches, and then, oh, let's just put a cap on all of it. The fact that he lives a perfect, sinless life. That he dies on a cross, and no one else raises him from the dead. He raises himself from the dead. That's wonderful. I love, um, and I know some of you uh, maybe know this verse out of the out of the Gospel of John. I, I what this is a. I love the the Gospel of John. I love how he writes, uh, and I think this is one of the best ways to end. The gospel, because John writes this. He says the very last verse of John says, "Now there were also many other things that Jesus did; were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written." You know what John just said there? I can't write enough for you. This guy, John and the other authors, only give us a glimpse into the majesty and the wonder of who Jesus is. They they eventually had to stop writing. And and one day, when we stand in heaven with these authors and Jesus himself, we're going to get to hear even more. To think about Have you ever thought about this? What other things did Jesus do that we don't know about? What other things did he say? All of it is encapsulated into this idea that he is truly wonderful. But Isaiah says that's only half of it because he is the wonderful counselor. Now, If you're like me, when you hear the word counselor, you automatically have a certain image in your mind, right, Uh, of what we think to be the modern-day counselor. Um, But in this context, the word counselor uh, goes far beyond that, because you see here on the screens that in the biblical sense, when we talk about a counselor, a counselor was ultimately a leader. And it it was a leader, uh, someone who was characterized by great wisdom, and, and their purpose was to provide guidance to others, It's no surprise to me then that Isaiah wants to begin with the title of a counselor, of a leader. The situation of Israel and the nation required a good leader, someone who could cast a greater vision for them, someone who could come alongside them and shepherd them, to take them from where they are and to where they should be someone who knew that the ultimate mark of a leader, that the greatest thing that a leader can ever be known for is how well they serve. They needed someone worth following. Isaiah doesn't just randomly put these four titles here. He starts off with Wonderful Counselor for a reason. I've been processing this more and more this week that Whether we realize this or not, all of us desire to be led well. Now, some personalities may fight this more than others, me being one of them, that I love to be in control, I like to be in charge, I don't like being told what to do, but I know at my core of hearts that what I desperately long for is to be led well. The problem is, we, we, one of the reasons that we struggle with this is, yes, our pride and our sin, and we, we want to do it our own way. We don't like people telling us what to do. Um, but the other is that even the greatest leaders will fail us at times. Even the best leaders that we know, the most um, Christ-like leaders out there will ultimately fail, but not this one, not this leader, not this counselor. We, we desire to be led. We want to know that somebody has our best interests at heart, knows how to take us from point A to point B, and is going to be with us the entire time. So just as he is wonderful, Jesus, as we see in the scriptures, Jesus proves himself to be this counselor, this leader. There's never been a better or stronger leader than Jesus, And notice this though, it's not just because of his servant heart. It's not just because of the amount of people that followed him. It's not just because that even now 2,000 years later, we are here because of the name Jesus. All that's true, but one of the things about Jesus' leadership is that, as, as even the word implies, is that he is the full embodiment of wisdom itself. I was reading in Psalm 139 this past week. And um, it says this: it says, "O oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, and, and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether." You hem and me, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is the Jesus that we're talking about here. This is the level of counsel that he has, the level of wisdom that he has, that he knows every single thing about us. He knows when we sit and when we rise. He knows our thoughts even before we think it. Guess what? That comes in handy when you're a leader. When you have that level of wisdom, that level of care, that you know the, the true inner working of someone's heart, that's exactly who we need to lead, to lead us. And because Jesus is the incarnate God, he possesses everything about him, including this. And we see that play out in his life. So Isaiah gives the nation of Israel this prophecy. And we see it lived out in the person of Jesus from uh, from his very birth all the way to his death and resurrection. We see this wonderful counselor, this marvelous leader come to life. And this marvelous leader whose mission is solely to restore people back to God to lead them into a personal relationship with God. This is the part that I don't want us to miss. If you would, turn back to Isaiah here, because this is, this is the really great part. We, we focus on the names a lot, but I, I want you to make sure that you catch something here in verse 7. Because as he lists off these titles, he gets to verse 7, and Isaiah says, "...of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." on the uh, throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Do not miss this last part right here. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Do not miss that word zeal, okay? Zeal, literally, uh, it it means enthusiasm, passion. that, That... When we read this, Isaiah says that he's going to be all these saints, he's going to do all this, but the motivation is because of his zeal for us, his passion, his enthusiasm. It's this zeal that causes God to send Jesus down on our behalf. He knows that ultimately left to ourselves, we cannot restore ourselves back to God. Only he can do that. Only God can turn tragedy into triumph. God is the only one that can do that. And, and this, is, this is so amazing to me because as I was thinking about this uh, this week is that when we think about these phrases, the, you know, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, I need you to remember something. Those titles still exist. Jesus is still the wonderful counselor. Those titles have not vacated him. We get to experience the wonderful counselor today and the reason is because the zeal never left this isn't this isn't just limited the, the zeal is not just limited to isaiah that zeal carries on forevermore it's the same zeal and the same passion that god has for us at this very moment the same desire to be the wonderful counselor to us today because that's who he wants to be jesus desperately wants to be our great counselor our leader and our shepherd the question is are we willing to listen to him are we willing to allow ourselves to be led by the wonderful counselor will we seek to know what it means to have personal relationship with Jesus as we said uh, for Isaiah and the people um, they are expecting a child right and the child would eventually be born the man of Jesus, he would, he would grow up to be a man and become all the things that the scriptures talk to him about. And yet, when we look in the Gospels, it's not uncommon. We see that um, despite all the people that did receive him, much more did not. That in fact, many of the, of the religious leaders rejected Jesus And I think one of the biggest reasons is because what so many people, and I I think we struggle with this today, is that we often have expectation. We set our own desire, our own hopes for what he could be. What is Jesus going to do for me? Will Jesus come in and do the things, all the things that I ask? It's certainly one of the things that uh, when Jesus came that so many people had objections with him for. That they had hoped Jesus would do all the things that they wanted him to do. But remember, Jesus' ultimate passion, his ultimate desire, his number one priority was never to change the circumstances of life. And this is something that's been really resonating me, that God's been convicting me of a lot this week, is that when we talk about why Jesus does the things he does, when we look at Christmas, why does God choose to send his son down to be born in a manger, to live the life that he does? Why is that? it's because of his zeal to draw us back into relationship with himself. And the primary desire is, therefore, it's not about changing the circumstances of our life, but rather it's about changing our hearts to bring us closer to him and experience the wondrous love that he has for us. This is the great message of Christmas, that God cares so much about this that he's willing to provide the answer and the solution to us. The greatest gift that was ever given is the life of jesus that would save us and bring us back to god so this week i I want to encourage you uh to to reflect and think on that that to, to remember that the wonderful counselor is still the wonderful counselor that jesus desires to be in yours and my life in such a way that he wants to guide us and lead us and no one is better fit to do that this morning for unto us a child is given, so that we are not left to ourselves. I'm going to pray, and we're going to continue our time this morning. Jesus, I am, thanks for being the wonderful counselor. Thanks for being a leader that cares so much that uh, you're willing to enter into our lives, that you are willing, um, despite all of our failures and shortcomings, God, that you know that you're the ultimate solution, the ultimate answer. God, it's, it's my own prayer and, I, and my prayer for everyone in this room that uh, we would know what it means to trust you, that we would know what it means to uh, trust in the fact that you are the good shepherd, that you are the wise, mighty leader, and God, we're thankful for that. Thank you for providing the answer. Thanks for Jesus, and it's, it's because of him that we're here this morning. God, we love you and we thank you. Amen.